Well, hello, my friends. This is Halfway There. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience, and I'm excited to bring this one to you today. Today, my guest is the executive director of the Master of Science in Financial Analysis program at Gordon College. Don't worry, he's going to tell us all about what that means. Uh, <laughs> welcome to Halfway There, Alexander Lowry. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me today, Eric. I'm really great to make the really happy to make the connection with you, and uh, it's great to to just I'm eager to hear your story. So, well, delighted to share it. And as you say, the program name doesn't really roll off the tongue. For starters, <laughs> let's just say it's Masters in Finance, and we'll go from there. There we go. I I did notice that, but I wasn't going to say anything. So, <laughs> all right. Well, that's great. Um, yeah. So I'm sure your background is going to tell us a little bit about how you came to this degree. And I know you're doing some really cool things with it um, that are certainly necessary and interesting. So we'll get to that. But tell us a little bit about where you are now, and then we'll go back. Sure. So uh, for me, this is the perfect storm in a blessed way for all sorts of changes going on in my life. And perhaps the most important thing is probably for the first time in my life, I have absolute clarity that I am exactly where God wants me, doing exactly what God wants me. And that's in my personal and professional life. And you know, the quick 30-second version of that is six months ago, I was in New York City working for J.P. Morgan. And now I'm living up on the beautiful North Shore of Massachusetts outside of Boston, working at this great little college where I get to talk and think about God every day. And I have a wonderful wife. Today is our two-year anniversary. And we have just had our first child. And we have just bought our first home. And we are so excited about how God has blessed us in so many ways. And our, our cup literally runneth over. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you have a lot of new things going on, it sounds like. <laughs> I do. Those are those are all good blessings for sure. Well, okay. Well, let's go back and take a look at how you got here. So, you know, I don't know a ton about you. Are you from that area? I have never been up this way, and I am an, a New York sports fan, so this is enemy territory. This was not on my radar. Yeah. Where are you from? Grew up in the New York, New Jersey area. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. I gotcha. Enemy territory. It's, it's Patriots <laughs> country. That's what you mean. Patriots, Red Sox, yes. you name it. Well, if you don't like the Red Sox, we can agree on that because I'm a St. Louis okay. Cardinals fan, and in 2004, they beat my Cardinals in four games. It was <laughs> terrible. It was so bad, they even made a movie about it. I was like, oh, man, come on. <laughs> so I get, I guess I get that. Okay, New York, New Jersey. So, well, that that's cool. So then, uh, so did you grow up in a Christian home or... I did. My mother was Christian, and she would take us to church. My father was uh, not Christian, and I remember being, I don't know, maybe 13, 15, and, and challenging him on this at one point. My parents were divorced at this point. I said, do you ever go to church? And at the time, he said, "I." he traveled a lot. I do when I'm out of town, I travel, and I guess I accepted that as a kid, but it didn't really make any sense. So I would say, no, my father was not a church-going person. Gotcha. Well, how did you come to faith then? So my mother always took us to church, and I would go, and I'm a first child, so I'm very dutiful, and that was fine, and I would be there, and that was okay, and I guess I was engaged, but it didn't really mean that much to me at that point. I didn't really know. I wouldn't really accept it. And when I found Jesus was when I was on a church mission trip during high school. We, I think this was the first year we did it, but after that, they continued every summer. That They would send the church away to somewhere in America. We went to Appalachia that year to work on homes. It's sort of like a habitat for humanity for youth, and you'd have morning and evening around the building work that you'd been doing. You'd have worship services and getting to know God, and it was in the middle of that trip 
in one of those sessions in the evening where it all just sort of clicked and I gave my life to Jesus and things began to change pretty hard and fast from there. And of course, then we can talk all about it, the ebbs and flows along the way mm-hmm. to where I got to where I am now. Yeah, sure. What was it about that meeting like that just kind of gripped you? I... You know, so I grew up in a in a safe, conservative, white middle class town with great schools, and didn't lack for anything of, in in many ways. And to be in one of the poorest parts of the country, Appalachia, is just devastated in terms of its economy. And yet, seeing people in many ways who are very happy. Um, they had a lot of stuff that I didn't have, you know, they, they had a close family, the, the home we were working on, um, mm-hmm. they were very religious and that just gave me a chance to step back during that week and reflect on this. And of course you're hearing messages by great speakers as you're going along. And I, I think that sort of realized there was something missing for me. And, and during the course of those couple of days found out that that was Jesus. Oh yeah. Interesting. That's so interesting, right? Cause we tend to think of places like that as having not a lot, but sometimes they have more than we do. We just, it's not stuff we can see. I, I've been fortunate to take a couple trips to Africa and you see people who have nothing, we would think, but they have everything, right? And you can be so happy living in a little village where all your family's around and think about it, you go, maybe you go do work in the fields for the day as you're living, but then you're at home with your family at night and you're just focused on what actually matters and uh, it was a good reminder for me, right? My mom's a good person of reminding me, like, remember, you're the 1% for the world. Like, you have so much compared to what other people have. Right. And it's it, it's easy to get lost then in this American consumer economy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I always want, you know, the latest phone or whatever it is. And it's like, sure. oh, that's such a, you know, mind-blowing technology that you can put in your pocket. Most of the world doesn't have that. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, so that's good. So a little little uh, social uh, culture showed you your need for Jesus. Mm. Interesting. Okay, well, so how did you grow from there? Would you, so you, you were going to church, so did you have like a youth pastor? or how, what, what kind of were the events that kind of helped you grow in Christ? Well, we had, a, we had a very strong youth program at church, so I was growing in my faith throughout high school. Um, I, w- I would like to say I thought I was, was pretty strong. I remember... The summer after that, I was at uh, sleepover soccer camp for a week, and I don't want to say I converted because someone else planted the seeds and I just got to harvest a little bit, but my roommate over the course of it, and we ended up talking about his program uh, and his life and his family and all this sort of stuff, and uh, by the end of it, he was reading the Bible and he went away and you know, I, I was I was doing good stuff, and I was I was strong, and I was great. And then I went to college, and I went to Haverford College outside of Philadelphia, which was started by Quakers, still had Quaker roots, so sort of clearly religious connotations to it, but is non-denominational now, and didn't connect with the church, and fell away as is common in college. So, um, ebbed and flowed there, and moved to New York after I graduated, and joined a great church, Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Became very close with the pastor and joined a bunch of committees and became a deacon and God was alive and powerful in my life. And that was probably the beginning of me wrestling with integrating work and faith because I did not work for a nice boss and I would you know, do the church stuff on Sunday and some of the weeknights, but wasn't really bringing it to my the forefront of my life as I think about it now. And um, then ended up after three or five years in New York, got sent over to London and never found a church I connected with there, despite trying a few and fell away again and came back to New York. And I'm short-circuiting this. We can dive wherever you want sure, to, but yeah. ended up um, 
after business school, joining JP Morgan, found my my best friend in New York there who brought me to NCS New Canaan Society, which has been powerful for me and helped take me to Redeemer, Tim Keller's church. And that's mm. where my wife, now wife, was attending and made that such a powerful life. And it's been onwards and upwards since then, which has just been amazing. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so many thoughts that I just want to ask <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of questions. Uh, I was just talking with one of my coworkers. We're going to be in New York in a couple of months. And so going to Tim Keller's church, I bet that was interesting. Oh. I real this is one of my problems, quote unquote problems moving up here now, right? So I got to the point where I was hearing Tim Keller preach on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Tim Keller is a transcendent individual, right? He is yeah. one of the foremost figures of our generation. He got to be normal, which is part of the problem in New York. Everything is special and unique. Uh-huh. And you go somewhere else and you're like, well, we're we're not in the Tim Keller church. And you're looking for you're not gonna find a Tim Keller church. But we were absolutely blessed. And one of my favorite people, he I think he plays very well in New York because he hits the intellectual bars. He really gets people to think you could agree, you could be agnostic or atheist and still agree with the first eighty percent of his sermon. Wow. Wow, interesting. Okay, yeah. Well, so he ruined you for other preachers. That's <laughs> what happened. That's that is dangerous. Well, very cool. Well, I mean, we may have to check that out. But okay. So and, and we, we can talk about that. I'll give you some all sorts of ideas as you're headed to New York. Please that, reach out to me. That'd be awesome. I'd love that. So a couple of something you said a couple of times was, you know if you didn't find a good community, you felt like you fell away in college. And then when you were in London, tell me, tell me a little more about that. Like why, why do you think that is the case? I can look back on that now and understand it, right? We are not meant to walk this journey alone. So I, obviously I think about it's my anniversary day, my spouse and how important my wife is to me and our walk of faith together. Uh, for me, New Cane Society in New York, which is a basically a Christian group of men in the marketplace and holding each other up and challenging each other in healthy ways. You cannot do this alone. You, you We will fail. That's what the enemy would want. Oh, you're, you're strong enough. Go do it by yourself. I can't. I'm going to have times where I need to hold other people up. I have times where I need them to hold me up and help each other stay accountable. And I, I've learned that now. And I can look back and realize that's one of the easiest ways for me to have failed was I didn't have a group or I didn't look for a group. And therefore it's far too easy to say, Oh, I'll sleep in today. Or, Oh, I'm, I'm just tired. I haven't found anything. I don't want to look for another one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah. I've, I've found that to be true for sure. If I, if I have a good group of people who I know will care if I'm there, you know, um, I'm much more likely to be involved in, not just church, but just groups, life groups, or whatever it is. Um, well, Redeemer has another amazing aspect like this. They are tremendously uh, influential in the community group space, and they do so much work uh, empowering them and training their leaders and giving them material. And we were connected with this amazing group of, of five similar-aged couples. Uh, none of us had kids yet, and we were just pouring into each other's lives and getting together. And, and similar to that, um, as we got married, Redeemer had something they called Marriage Lab. Dr. Brent Bounds runs it, and it was phenomenal where you were together with these different couples in your first year of marriage, and each month as you got together, you talked through a different theme. And it opened my eyes to not only what I needed to think about, but how important it was to be wrestling with this with other people of, of similar faith views and just talking it through and having people to do life with. Yeah, what a cool ministry. That's really neat. Did I hear you right? Did you say that it was your anniversary today? Today is our second wedding oh, anniversary. Well, happy anniversary. That's exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, I remember those days. So we just hit 20 years <laughs> last, last uh 
August. So uh, congratulations. I remember those early years. Those were good. That's cool. Well, awesome. So, okay. So good. So having a good community is important. Um, obviously you've, you've learned under some, some great teachers and preachers. Um, tell us a little bit, have you had any times when you, um, felt like God was kind of far away or distant in your walk? Oh, sure. So, I mean, that I want to put it all in perspective, right? My own challenges are my own challenges and I can easily rationalize it compared to what other people go through. It's nothing, but some of them were devastating for me. Right. So I remember I've never forgotten the moments when my parents told us they were getting separated and then they ended up getting divorced and and what that was like and going through that and what that did for my own views of, um, I remember talking with my father one point I was, I don't know, probably again about 14, 15 and asked him a question that didn't bug me. Like, why did you end this? Why did you walk away? And he said to me, I woke up one day and I realized I didn't love your mother. Now, that makes no sense as a rational adult. Any therapist would tell you, tell you that is not the way the world works. You grow distant over time. He could have been simplifying it for me as a child. Maybe he was emotionally unaware and that's how he thought about it. It doesn't make any sense. But as a kid, what that did is it put into my mind this ridiculous sense that I can wake up one day and it, it's like, Tag team wrestling. Tag, I'm out, you're in. Uh, I could do that to the person next to me, or they could do it to me. Oh, yeah. And that that was a scary prospect. And it led to me never wanting to get close, never wanting to be vulnerable, which of course doesn't lead to success in a relationship. Right. I mean, I guess it's akin to something else. Uh, my parents would tell me the divorce. I think probably every therapist tell their parents, tell the kids that you love them and it's not their fault about the divorce. The irony of that, of course, is a kid's going to think one of two things either the parents lying and it actually is the kid's fault, which is a terrible thing, or the parents are telling the truth, which means the kid's best was not good enough to keep them together. Neither of which leads to success. Right. Yeah, indeed. That is, that is so hard. Okay. So, well, how did that affect your view of God? I'm curious. You know, you, I think it's very easy to, and I say this as an adult now who's gone through stuff. It's very easy sure. to blame God. Uh, if there's a God, none of this stuff would happen. Uh, why would God let this kind of thing happen to me? And, and you know, I'm very much coming out the other side of some of these things of God doesn't make the bad things happen, but he can make good out of anything. Mm-hmm. And certainly I can be taught lessons and I can grow and I can develop and be prepared. And, you know, the perspective for me now is like, he's been up there for more time than we could possibly ever count. There aren't enough zeros to figure that out. This is a this is a dust in the hourglass of time, a little speck of sand. But I'm being prepared for things greater and bigger. So, but as a kid, you know, I don't know that. Like, why would bad things happen? Why could this possibly happen? It's very easy to pull away. And uh, I've learned enough now to realize that's okay. That's part of the challenging and the growing process. And never made God stop loving me. I'm still His child, and He's still one of the best for me. Yeah. Yeah, I know it can be hard sometimes if you feel like you have a challenging relationship with your dad to kind of relate to the Lord as Father. Um, but maybe that's not your story. I've just heard that. No, I, I think that's a great point. Are you familiar with The Shack by Paul Young? Yeah. Okay, so I love both the book and the movie, and both do a wonderful job. The movie brings some things to life the book couldn't, and vice versa. And I went to a premiere of that, and... So the guy who runs the NCS Manhattan chapter we talked about before, a good friend of mine, he brought me to it and he knew what was going to happen. And I hadn't, fin- I hadn't read the book at that point yet. And so I don't want to ruin this for your listeners, but uh, there's a poignant scene where dad and son are reunited, if you remember it. And that kind of brought me to my knees. And the, the idea that, you know, 
the dad who wronged the son is apologetic and loves the son. And the son feels the same way back to the dad and sort of this sense of, wow, could that really be the way? Could it, could it be my dad didn't mean to do this? He wasn't trying to hurt us. All was okay. And it, it just forces you to wrestle with some of those big issues. And then you get to that whole difference of earthly father versus heavenly father. And my earthly father is not perfect. I, I freely recognize I am not going to be perfect with my daughter. Yeah. I'm sure I've screwed up a lot already and there's a lot to come. But my heavenly father is perfect, loves me perfectly, grows and develops and can teach me a lot by being a father. And I got to cut myself some slack and I should cut my father some slack. So there's a lot of still pain and healing going on. But um, I think I perhaps understand some of it more now that I am a father. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I heard this great um, quote just today, actually. I've, you know who Andy McDowell is? She was in like, mm-hmm. Groundhog Day. She was on a podcast called Off Camera uh, with Sam Jones, who he does these amazing interviews with artists that, that just, um, as a as a wannabe creative, I just am so drawn to these guys. <laughs> so um, I listened to it all the time. I was listening today, and she said she had grown up with an alcoholic mother. And she said, that she tried, she realized that she could only do so much to fix the things that she could fix with her kids. You know, like there's some things I can, I can change and I can change those and be different than my parents were for, for my kids. And then they can change other stuff, you know, and that there's mm-hmm. other things that they can do and that generally, generationally this can get better. And it just, uh, it just really spoke to me. It's like, Oh yeah. You know what? Even though our, our parents aren't perfect, we, we can do what we can do and we can, we can stop certain things from going on. It's funny you say that. Cause what I always want to do is give my dad credit because he was better than his dad. Yeah. And obviously expectations of generations are different, right? Fathers today are expected most likely to be involved and to want to be involved as opposed to before you could just provide and that was okay. Right. Uh, but my dad grew up with an alcoholic abusive father and he did not do that to me and he deserves a lot of credit for, breaking that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Wow. All right. Well, there's a little providence for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. So, uh, all right. So take us into, um, so it sounds like you've had some challenge, some challenges. We all kind of have those and we grow through them. Um, how did you, so you ended up in, you said a JP Morgan chase mm-hmm. into finance. Were you always drawn to finance? That's where I thought I was going to be after college It's what, made sense to me. I've always loved the idea of business. It seemed to resonate, but I was a history major because that's what I was just passionate about and enjoyed. And I think that's a great thing for people to be able to do in college. And that didn't translate directly over into finance straight away. So I went into management consulting and it wasn't until I was able to get my MBA and use that as the opportunity to make the switch. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. There's no money in history (laughs) unless you're selling artifacts or something. Right. So tell me a little bit more about how you came to where you are now and that kind of bridge bridges the gap for us, kind of faith-wise, and how God led you there. And then we'll talk a little bit about about this financial analysis program because I know you're doing some cool things. Sure. So I guess the great way to explain it is uh, I'm at Wharton getting my MBA, trying to figure out the next role. And you know, you're talking about Type A personality, elite schools, right? So you're probably not always in the best environment to be thinking about things from a godly perspective. Although that's clearly where you need some God, right? And God needs to be in those places. So it's great to be there and trying yeah. to add that value when you can. Yeah. Are you that and, way? Uh, go ahead. Are you that way? Like Type A kind of? Oh yeah. I'm, okay. Uh, and I've been working on that actually. My <laughs> wife would tell you I'm dramatically better and different now than I used to be. 
and partly the environment you put someone in. So let's think about it. Going into New York, um, then on top of that, you're working in a financial institution, which on its own is intense, and you're working in headquarters of a leading financial institution. It just ramps itself on top of itself up. Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard it is quite different there, uh, like in you're kind of in the center of all the you know financial world. It's a whole different world, whole different thing. Um, a little different out here in Denver where I am, but I get that. So, the, okay. So anyway, so that's your environment. That's kind of how you were wired anyway. And so you, you embrace that. Go, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, you're good. So for me, I'm I'm at Wharton. I keep interrupting me, please. Let's make it a dialogue. So I'm at Wharton and I'm thinking about uh, what's next and how I want to go. And for me, it came down to roles at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. And I was actively praying, Lord, where do you want me? What should I be doing? But I want to be very clear as I look back, there's a lot of my ego in this, right? I'm coming from a good school. I'm a smart person. This will be really good and successful. I'm going to have a great career. <laughs> and I was convinced God wanted me to go to J.P. Morgan. And it turns out he did, but just for different reasons than I expected. And I, I alluded to this before. I met my best friend there. He was in the first team I joined in my first role. He brought me to NCS, which has changed my perspective on what it means to be a man and to how to be a man and prepared me to be a father about vulnerability and openness and transparency and the healing that that has brought for me from so many of the events that I've gone to. And that has been wonderful. And at the same point, the, that was where the connection to Redeemer started for me, which again has been transformative in my life and prepared. So my time at JP Morgan was absolutely where God wanted me. Just I didn't know his plans. I thought I did. And that's always usually the way it works out for me. But I was at J.P. Morgan, so imagine deputy CEO of the U.S. private bank, enjoying the role, thinking it's prestigious, this is about me, and it's probably stroking my ego. And then the opportunity opened up, moved across into deputy CEO of the private foundation, which in many ways was a great place to be because I've got one foot in the nonprofit world. For me, it was thinking, how do I do some giving back and at the same point still be successful? And this is... Uh, one of the leading foundations, probably about 25th biggest in the country, give away $460 million a year. So doing really amazing, incredible stuff. So still working in a high work, high performing environment, but I've got one foot in the world of sort of giving back and doing good for society, which felt great. And in God's infinite wisdom, clearly that was preparing me for where I am now in a college and a nonprofit yeah. environment. And that was successful and helpful there. Um, but so, I'm still working in New York, still working in a finance institution, feeling great about it. And then that's where this opportunity knocked for me. Okay, great. Well, I want to elaborate on that just a little bit. So you said you were, what was this program that you said you got into or you were doing? You were. You mean at Gordon College? No, you were doing, um, or was it like a group or something, a men's group? Oh, New Canaan Society, NCS. Yeah, okay, NCS, that's what it does. So tell me, because you, you said that that changed you. And so I'm curious, like, what do you think, how do you think God used that to shape you? Like, what did he do? And then how did it change your perspective? Sure. So the easiest way to think about NCS is it's, it's men only group, men in the marketplace. It's basically Alcoholics Anonymous in, in some ways for men in the marketplace. It is all about, you can reveal your, your worst inner demons and the, the worst horrible things you've done. And other people have done it and you will find comfort and companionship in that. And it's amazing. A speaker will be up there sharing about it could be abusive relationships or an affair or alcoholism or a drug addiction or whatever it might be. And so many people in the audience begin, oh my gosh, you too. And it starts to break down barriers and allows vulnerability and openness. It's all about friendship with Jesus and friendship with other men. And the simple view is 
if we break it down along stereotypes, women already know how to talk and share. Women are really good at emotions and getting it out there. Their, their brains are literally wired that way. Whereas men, we are not. We are creatures that kind of keep it inside. We, we do single tasking. We don't know how to do that. And so you, for men to learn how to share often was easier in the company of other men. And it allowed me to get in touch with some of those feelings that had been buried about my dad and to surface them and get them out there and being witnessing what other great, strong Christian men are doing in terms of what they model and how they lead and the way they become fathers gave me a good example because you come from a family of origin and you think that's the right thing. You think that's normal. It may not actually be right or normal or a good thing. Right. You have to see that from other people. And in the safety of that sort of environment allowed me to, to flourish. Oh, yeah, great. Well, thanks for that. I've actually never heard of the New Canaan Society, so that was uh, that was new for me. I had to catch that. There is a chapter in Denver. I saw that. I just tried to Google it so I could put a little link. So, friends, if you uh, want to check it out, you can just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com and look at the show notes for this page. It's there, or you can just Google New Canaan Society, but it'll it'll be there. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, something I hadn't heard of, but that sounds like it really shaped your life and allowed you to kind of open up some things that maybe were there that you needed to. Mm, I think so. Yeah, cool. Okay. So I, I heard you say that and I thought, oh, I'm always interested in how how God uses, what God uses to to do that. So that's the place sounds like where you got, you learned some vulnerability and, and kind of dug into those things. Yeah. And I realized that that's a good thing and that's the way I should be leading it. You know, I grew up thinking a man has a, an armor mask on and doesn't share emotions and uh, doesn't cry and is really tough and strong. And think about a lot of the images we see in society, uh, whether it's abusive of women, certainly objectifying women, and uh, all these sorts of behaviors that really are not what we should be doing. You think about Jesus. Jesus is the most feminine man I've ever seen, and yet he was <laughs> the strongest man as well. He knew emotions, and he knew how to use them. And that's a powerful thing. Yes. Oh, I love that. Man, I love that. So there's so much in there. Um that I could talk about forever, but I think this is part of the integration of the human person. Like when you, when anytime you can look at Jesus and go, that was a powerful statement you made. He was, he was, he had both powerful feminine traits, I guess we could say, or, and as well as being a strong masculine man. And yeah. uh, that's the integration of the human being, right? He's, he didn't reject his emotions. Um, he, you saw him cry. You saw him, you know, engage people in, in compassionate ways. I love that word that you see around, um, Jesus sometimes that he was moved, you mm -hmm. know, and, um, like with the widow of Nain, I think it was, she was burying her kid and he says he was moved. And that word is like from his gut, you know, he just was moved and he, and he acted he had, so he was kind of had, you see those, both of those things going there. Anyway, I, well, I think that. my favorite Bible verse is the easiest one to memorize. What's the what's the three word three word verse? Uh, mm, Jesus wept. Is that you got it? Yeah, right. In John, I forget where that is. Seven. Just an amazing example. Fourteen, right? Right. And knowing what he was about to do, that's what I never understood. Like if if I knew what I was about going to raise somebody from the dead, I'm not going to cry about it, right? <laughs> but but he did it anyway. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. What a great, what a great example that is. Um, anyway, that's something we've been talking about here lately about integration of the human person. Had um, Jay Parker from Hot Holy Humorous, which she's a 
Christian sex mm-hmm. blogger, but I wanted to talk to her um, because of that. You know, it's another aspect of our humanity that we just don't always bring in, um, you know, to our whole our whole person and address that way. Um, so, you know, but that whole, I just think the idea of thinking about the whole person and integrating our emotions, integrating our will and our desire um, is just super powerful. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Well, in some ways that's, there's a, and this is not necessarily part of my job, but I've made it part of my job is that we're launching something in Boston. We've got our first event on Wednesday this week. I'm excited, excited about recalling it the finance and faith forum. And it's all about integrating your work and your faith. And the reality is just talk about the whole person. Like I don't want to be one person at church on Sunday and maybe Wednesday night Bible study and somebody different at the office. And at JP Morgan, in some ways it was it was hard not to do that. And that's my own failing, I guess, but it was a hard charging, tough place versus I come to Gordon college. Now we talk about God all day, every day. And that mm. is why we're here. And it's, it's a breath of fresh air. In some ways I feel like I'm halfway to heaven already. kind of pinch myself. Yeah. What is that? Um, so what is that like? How, how could you, cause it, you know, your environment will affect you or, and you, you do kind of put on a, what's the word? skin is the word I'm thinking of, right? Like put on a suit, like you put on your, your kind of exterior for where you're, where you have to go. Um, you know, those of us out in friendly Denver might think of the Northeast as being kind of a thick skin place. Right. Uh, so, so how do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you keep a humble heart or keep that kind of, you know, soft position of your, of your heart in the middle of a place that you, that might be kind of tough and, and, you know, challenging? It's a great question. I think there are different ways to do it and it depends on the person, right? And it's all about being true to yourself, which I think the real answer is. So if some people are just kind and nice, the kind of people that abused is the wrong way to put it, but taken advantage of at a place like a JP Morgan, like they'll be forced to work late or help other people or maybe not get promoted because they're not forcing themselves over other people, helping them out of the way. But that's probably setting a godly example. Um, there's other stories that uh, NCS, I hear lots of great stories, people's strategies. For example, Bob Dahl, who's very big in the finance industry. He's actually speaking for us in Q2. We're excited about that. Yeah. But he tells a great story that he got fired at BlackRock for being open about his faith. And he was very senior at BlackRock. And what he likes to talk about is, so the way I approach it is if one of my direct reports tells me they've got a problem, he'll listen to it, it'll help them. And I'll say at the end, and I'll pray for you. And he says, nobody really gives them a hard time about that. Maybe someone occasionally gives them a side glance. And he says, if they're dumb enough to come back and talk to him about it again, (laughs) then at the end of the second conversation, I'll say, how about we pray about it together now? You know, he's got his own different ways of going about it. I've heard the Dean of the MBA program at Stern in NYU say, New York, he goes, I will find ways subtly if someone brings it up to tell them that I'm Christian. So for example, someone will say, what'd you do this weekend? It's like, well, you know, we had this awesome sermon at church on Sunday and I'm not forcing it on them because they opened the door and I can put it out there. I don't have to go too far and I'll see if they want to run with it. But I want people to know that I'm Christian to some extent because I want them to pay more attention to me. Not that I want pressure on myself, but I am an example and I need to be aware of that. I need to be conscious that they're looking at me and they're going to look for potentially opportunities to bring me down. But that's my job to live in a Christian way. My pastor in New York that I loved, he would talk about, even though he was Protestant, he would wear the, what he joked, the dog collar whenever he went out because <laughs> he wanted people to know who he was. It was a visible representation and he, he had to be on his best behavior because of it. Yeah. That's why I don't have a fish on the back of my car. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, but no, I love that. I love those. Those are great examples of kind of how do I, how do I, you know, try to maintain and be a witness in a, in a place that is not necessarily open to, to who I am. Mm. I like that. Okay. Well, you mentioned your, the forum that's coming up right. and some of the work that you're doing. Take us through um, how you came to this position because you, it sounds like it was kind of recent, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then what, what you guys are trying to do there? Cause it, it is definitely interesting to me. So this is how I got here is a total God thing. So I actually thought we were going to be in Denver out in your neck of the woods. And my wife was at the time, I think just my fiance was beginning to say, look, I don't think you work in a hundred hours at a bank is going to be good for us. And we started wrestling with it and we realized, okay, we're getting married. Maybe we should move out to your brother out in Colorado, better quality of life. There's still finance companies out there. Uh, this would be great. And uh, we went out there and we visited and we thought, I literally thought God was talking to me going, this is my country, son, come out here. And I was getting lots of fine art interviews where I was coming in second. And I kept being patient going, okay, God, that means not this job. This was the wrong job. I got it. And it kept happening again and again until he was eventually saying, you're not getting it, son. This is not where you're going. And in parallel with that, and again, it was through NCS, multiple guys at NCS knew I was thinking about moving to Colorado. And they said, there's this great job at this little school you should be going to look at. And as we started paying attention to it, we came up here, we interviewed, and we were going through the process. And my wife said, you know what? This is the wrong geographic direction. We don't have friends and family up here. Um, this, this does not fit a lot of the criteria we had. We should not do this. And uh, I wanted to respect my wife, and I thought that was a logical choice. So I called the recruiter, and I said, I respectfully need to bow out of the process, and here's why. I wish you guys lots of luck. And the recruiter said, I'd like to challenge you on that because you told me God said you're leaving J.P. Morgan. And I feel like you're the guy in the desert island asking God to save him. And I show up in a rowboat and you send me away. So that was a really good pushback from him. And we continued in the process and we met the people up here and we visited more. And we realized this is an amazing opportunity. You think about all the people up here in the Northeast, it's not highly religious. So there's a lot of opportunity to be doing God's work up here. And you're talking about a little Christian college, a little less than 2,000 students. And the opportunity for me to add value in a place like this, I feel is tremendous. Let's let's talk about the different vibe, right? It's easygoing. It's not stressful. So my type A personality is a great fit because nothing else amps it up. I feel <laughs> nice. like there's a, a lot of value I can bring and wonderful people to work with. And it just changes my perspective every day. We live in a beautiful place with kind people and I can just work hard and do well. And that that's just the environment, right? I'll, I'll take a pause there, but I'm happy to tell you about the program because that's even maybe the most exciting part for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Do, go ahead and do that. Tell us all about uh, the program. So the opportunity was Gordon College realized we need more Christians in finance. I think most people listening to this would probably say, you know, 10 years on from the Great Recession, if we'd had more ethical decision-making, if we'd had more people making godly choices, the world would have been a better place. And I still think that's true. So there are a few Christian colleges that have MBA programs. Now, MBA programs, you could argue are a dime a dozen. Everybody has them. It's a great thing. However, we can get more of God's perspective in. So Gordon looked at it and said, we can do a unique offering that doesn't necessarily compete with them, but it it does, right? So at the end of the day, what we're starting is, we, we said we'd call it a master's in finance. It's just easier to roll off the tongue. A one-year master's in finance program. And there's a couple key differentiators. Think about an MBA. It's typically two years long, average tuition, $140,000. And the way an MBA is structured is your first year is all general courses. You will take everything, strategy, operations, accounting, marketing, finance, statistics, et cetera. And only in the second year do you specialize. 
So for me at Wharton, I went there to study finance. That's all I wanted. You don't do that till the second year. That's just the way that the curriculum is structured. So picture a one-year master's in finance at Gordon College. You know you want to be in finance. That's all you're really going to study, economics, accounting, all that sort of great stuff. But it's really all in the finance world. And you're talking one year versus two years. So the opportunity cost is cut in half of lost salary. And the tuition here is 30000 versus 140 average. So again, quarter of the price, big difference in terms of the debt load you graduate with. All those things are good. But clearly, we are teaching it from an ethical Christian perspective because that's what we want to embed. Every class is all about that. We want our graduates going into the working world with that perspective. And another key differentiator for us is our locations. We're just outside of Boston. When you think finance hubs, New York is number one. San Francisco is probably number two. Boston's probably number three. Lots of amazing companies up here that we have great access to. And people want to see us putting our people there, right? All of the people in Boston are Christians. Like, we would love to have more Gordon alums in the industry. And that's our goal is five or 10 years from now that Mm -hmm. we are placing lots of people in. They're growing the positions of leadership. They're mentoring other people. I mean, I'll tell you, here's my vision of what success is. So uh, we have one of our students sitting at a desk at Fidelity or State Street, whatever it is, next to an HBS alum, graduate. And the two of them are sitting there side by side. It's midnight. And what happens at midnight, you're bored with the stupid projects you're working on. So what do you do? You start talking about real life. And they're having conversations. And the HBS guy respects our grad because we have the same technical knowledge, right? So you've passed that hurdle. And he's looking at him going, you know, I've seen your work. I've seen how you work hard and you're really smart. I like you. You're, you're pretty good. So you just have normal conversations. And maybe there's this opportunity at midnight where the HBS guy goes, you know, there's this thing in the Bible I've never figured out. What does that What does that mean to say sit still and know that I am God? Well, mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. And it just goes from there. Like To me, that's success, and that's the opportunity we're trying to groom people for. Yeah, and that's, those kind of conversations do happen. I can attest working also in a financial company that, uh, that so many times when I worked in the call center especially, I would sit there. If it was slow, we'd just sit there and talk. And everybody knew I was going to seminary at the time. And so then they'd ask me those kind of questions, Eric, what about this? And, you know, one time, one of my coworkers who was, who was openly gay just said to me, Hey, Eric, I know what the church in general in air quotes, he said, thinks about me. What do you think about me? And that was a huge opportunity for me to go, Hey, I love you, brother. Right. You know, so those kind of things do happen. I love that you're wanting to get more people out there thinking in this way with the kind of qualifications that they need, but also with the goal of, Hey, Let's talk about, or, you know, let's just be the, be there, right? Cause we're salt as we're there. And for me, it's, you know, we think of Gordon is going to be different. We have a different plan, a different approach. I'll, I'll just give you one example. So I went to business school, Wharton. Wharton is arguably the elitist capital institution and the number of people, 96,000 alumni, right? We're everywhere and they do everything and are very successful. I will never forget the day that my ethics class started and this professor had been teaching it for 40 years. He walks in for the first class and you got 90 students in the room or chatting, having a good time. And he gets our attention by throwing down this giant manila folder on the desk, makes this bang. And all the students turn their heads and look and see what's going on. He points at the folder and he said, these are all of my Wharton students over the last 40 years that have gone to jail. And I would like to not add to that folder this semester. (laughs) (laughs) Where I think about the Gordon equivalent. We, and we just finished our first ethics and leadership class. We bring in a manila envelope and there's nothing in it. And we point it, we say, no one's ever going in this. Wow. Different, different approach. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> that's what, did that scare you? 
Um, Probably not you, because you knew, like, I'm not going to do that. But the- No, but, you know, when I, having looked back on it now from J.P. Morgan, and you see what's going on in the industry, there's so much temptation, and it is so easy. It's a slippery slope. Um, make a, a little shortcut here, do different things there. Yeah. You've seen all the scandals over the last few years You're in the industry. It's shocking how many things have gone wrong that none of us ever thought we needed to worry about before. Rig- rigging the LIBOR rates, uh, a simple thing like that. Did all of these guys from different companies really come together in chat rooms and say we're actively going to manipulate the markets? Yeah. That's um, abhorrent. I can't even imagine it would happen, and yet it does. Yeah, and it's kind of unbelievable, And it, but you're right, it happens. Um, yeah, so we absolutely could use some ethics in uh, in finan- the financial world. But we, we just think about places that God could be, and we could have more God. You know, financial services to me comes to mind as a place that we could have a lot more God. There's, there's finance in the Bible. God designed finance. He intends for finance to be done in his way, and it can be done in, quote-unquote, the right way. There's so many great things we can do with it. So we'd love to be helping shape the future of it. Oh, I love that. That is awesome. All right. So Alexander, if people want to know more about this program, where can they go? Well, the two easiest things are the website and my email. So the website is gordon.edu forward slash graduates forward slash finance or my email, which is alexander.lowry, L-O-W-R-Y at gordon.edu. And my wife would tell you my phone is probably surgically attached to my hand at all times. So I get those emails pretty quick. Perfect. That's great. Well, I will have links to those also at halfwaytherepodcast.com. So as always, you can go there. If it's in the first few weeks that uh, the show's out, you'll find it on the first page. Otherwise, you can go back and uh, go through the archives and you'll find it. So, all right. Well, Alexander, it has really been a pleasure to hear your story. I appreciate uh, everything that you shared. Um, We had a great conversation and uh, blessings on you in this ministry. Eric, I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you very much for the time today to chat with you and your listeners. 